Romans chapter 6. Sorry, Romans chapter 5. Page 917, if you're using one of the chair Bibles. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. Page 917. Chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in this, that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tonight, in one place, at one time, from all around the world, some of the most lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy people are gathering for this great event, the Academy Awards. <laughs> they're gathering together for the Oscars. They're walking down the red carpet, and they're looking lovely and beautiful and handsome and debonair. They're gathering together because they want to see who will win the Oscars. Some of them are up for Oscars, and they're expected that maybe they will win an Oscar this year. Others of them are just praying that one day, one day that maybe they will be nominated and maybe even win an Oscar. See, because an Oscar, is, an Oscar is symbolic. An Oscar means that of all the lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy people that are out there, you are one of the most lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy people. There's this iconic moment in the history of the Oscars. In 1985, Sally Field won the Best Actress in a Motion Picture Award. This was the second time that she had won the Oscars. She won it in 1980, and then she won it in 1985. And when the announcement was made, Sally Field, she jumped up, and her face was aglow, and people were applauding, and the camera was on her, the lights were up. She walks up to the stage, she grabs her Oscar, and she comes up to the microphone, and she says, she says, I have always wanted this award. I have had the most unorthodox career, and more than anything, I have wanted your respect. And I didn't feel it the first time, but now I feel it. I feel certainly that you like me. This time, you like me. And those words have been echoed and parodied over the years. You like me. You really like me. Jim Carrey in The Mask, if you've ever seen that movie, says, You love me. You really love me. <laughs> those words, you like me, you really like me, you love me, you really love me. And that moment where Sally Field is standing in front of all these applause, capture, um, capture an experience, capture a moment, capture a a feeling that we all, deep down in our guts, desire. We all want to know that there's something about us that is lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. When someone says to you, you did a good job, you're like, yeah, I did do a good job. It feels good. Someone says, you look so lovely. 
Or someone says to you, you look good, dude. You're like, I do look good. Look at me. I know. I feel great. You know, and there's a sense in which, yes, I feel good. I look good. I have a sense of worth. There's something valuable about me. These are things that we long for and we crave because overall in our culture, this is how we oftentimes give and take love. Love is something that is earned. Love is something that is rewarded for being talented or beautiful or skilled, being able to do something that no one else is able to do, to create something that everybody uses, to be able to do something amazing and wonderful. And when we do those things, then people say, oh, I love you. You did a wonderful job. You're great. And that is perhaps why when we read about God's love, it strikes us a little peculiar, maybe strange or unsatisfying or just incomprehensible. God loves sinners. Passage, it says that, that Christ, while we were still weak, died for the, the ungodly. That God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we wonder, why? Why would God love sinners? Why do you love us sinners that we are? Some of you ask the question these ways. Why do you choose to love us even when we continue to sin? How, in spite of our constant failures, can you still love us? Why would you ever love a messed up sinner like me? Or why would you send your son to save someone as undeserving as me? Why do you love us, sinners that we are? And if we're honest with ourselves, we look at ourselves and we see that there's very little, if, if anything, that recommends us to God. We see ourselves, if we're honest, in Hebrews chapter 5. We see ourselves that we are weak. We are ungodly. We are sinners. I wonder, why would God love us? After spending an hour looking at pornography on the computer screen, you ask yourself the question, why am I so weak? Why, why was it so hard for me not to just push the off button? Why am I so weak? Why can't I just turn around and walk out of the room? Or we sit with all of our friends at dinner time, and we have a wonderful conversation, but the entire time we keep seeing out of the corner of our eye a girl who's sitting by herself at a table. And she usually sits by herself. And you think to yourself at the end of the evening, why was it so hard for me one time to not sit with my friends and just go over and sit with someone who needs a friend? Why is that so hard? Or why, why did I drive home drunk again from Founders? Why did I do something so stupid? Like, really, why is it so hard for me to ask someone to drive me home? Or why is it so hard for me to just 
Say no to that third drink. Why is that so hard? Why do I always feel so weak? Why is it that I can't spend 15 minutes a day in prayer of an entire day that is devoted to me? Why can't I take 15 minutes to devote to God? Why is that so hard? What is it about my life? What is it about my relationships? What is it about the expectations that I have about myself or my parents have for me or other people have for me that I can't set aside just 15 minutes a day? Why am I so weak? Why is this so hard? We all feel this weakness in everything that we do on a regular basis. And friends, this doesn't just stop right here and now during this time of your life. For the rest of your life, you will be battling this weakness. You'll fudge your taxes just a little bit so that you get a better return. Racism will rear its ugly head as soon as you start thinking about which neighborhood you're going to buy a house in or where you're going to send your kids to school. You'll ask yourself the question, why why is it so hard for me not to fantasize about a woman who is not my wife? Why is it so hard for me not to fantasize about a man who is not my husband? Why do I lash out at my children with such hurtful words out of my impatience? And why can't I love my elderly neighbor who can't get out of his house? Why can't I just go knock on the door and say hello when he lives right next door? We all, if we're honest with ourselves, we see ourselves in the words of, of Paul in chapter 7, where he says, For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Wretched man am I. We wonder, why does God love us sinners that we are? Why doesn't he just turn away from us? In every other relationship that we have, if someone continually turns their back on us, if someone continually pushes themselves in front of us or attacks us, we walk away from those relationships, right? If your housemate regularly does not pay his part of the rent, you kick him out of your house. If your roommate continually treats you with contempt or disdain, eventually you go to your RD and you ask for a new roommate. If your point guard of your basketball team doesn't show up for practices, eventually the coach cuts her. Right? Why doesn't God, when we continually turn our backs to him or attack him with our ways of life, continually reject him, why doesn't he just say, I'm done. I'm going to go get myself a new people. Why? Why does God... Prove his love with sending his son, Jesus Christ, his son, Jesus, to die for us. That's unfathomable to me. I have, I have two sons, a six-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. I would sacrifice them for nobody let alone someone who, who continually turns their back on me or continually rejected me. That is just amazing to me. God's love. 
is amazing. It still, I'm not really answering the question yet. Why? Why then does God love us? Why does he love us? Well, I think an answer begins to be seen in verse 6. God says, Paul says there, that Christ died for the weak at the right time. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So that phrase there, at the right time. Now what that doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that at the right time when we were at our worst, when we were most powerless and we were the absolute worst, Christ came and died for us. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean is at the right time when God, through his plans and his purpose, was bringing everything to fulfillment, everything to a point of completion, then at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So imagine, imagine God is like a, a director of a great play or a great movie. And God, throughout time, has been setting up the scene, has been putting up the backdrop, has the actors in place. They have their words that they say back and forth to one another. He's got the lighting in the right place. He's got the, got the sound all right. He's got the publicity out through everywhere, through the entire town, saying, please come and hear this great story. And then at the right time, when everybody's in their seats, at the right time, then the curtain opens and says, I love you. Because I love you. Right? So throughout all of history, starting with Abraham and moving on to Jacob and, and to Moses and David and all the people of Israel, God has been working out this whole plan, has been showing it, setting it up, putting it all up. So at the right time, he would say to us all, I love you because I love you. Okay, so Abram. Genesis chapter 12. Abram's this dude from the Ur of Chaldeans, right? Where's the Ur of Chaldeans? I don't know. Nowhere, right? No place important. He's just a guy, right? He's just this dude who's got some sheep. He's got a little bit of some household servants. His brother's Haran. He's got a nephew named Lot. He's the son of Terah. He's just a guy, right? But God one day shows up to this guy, Abram, and says, hey, why don't you go to Canaan? And there, he says in, in Genesis chapter 12, there I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God takes this guy from nowhere who has nothing to recommend him to God and says, I am going to bless you. I'm going to set my love upon you, and through you, I am going to bless all peoples. Now, there is absolutely nothing that recommends Abram to God at this point. He's just a dude. He's just a guy. And then we find right after this point, right after this, Abram and Sarai go into Egypt. And this, we get to really see the weakness of Abram's character. They go into Egypt, and he says to Sarai, Sarai, you're a beautiful woman. People are going to think you're attractive and, well, they're probably going to want you to be their wife and so they're probably going to kill me. So while we're there, just say you're my sister. What? Like, talk about a guy with weak character. He can't stand up for his wife. 
No, and so you end up going there, and what do you think happens? Well, Pharaoh sees Sarah and says, well, she's a beautiful woman. Well, oh, uh, she's his sister? Well, that makes good sense. I will go ahead and take her to be my wife. And what does Abram do? He doesn't stand up and say, whoa, 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 wait, wait, actually, she's my wife. No, he just says nothing, right? And so he ends up taking Sarai uh, into Pharaoh's house, and God finally has to step in, and God afflicts Pharaoh and all of his family with plagues, and like, whoa, what's going on here? And then finally, he says, what have you done? You've given to me your wife. Why didn't you tell me he, she was your wife? So we see there that Abram, this man of faith that we think of as such a great hero, really has this weak character. And then when it actually comes to the promises of God, later on, when he's wondering, will God actually fulfill his promise through me? Will he give me a descendant? not so sure about that. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go ahead and have relations with my wife's servant so that I can have a son. Like, are you kidding me? This guy is weak, right? There is absolutely nothing that recommends him to God, but yet God continues to love him and gives him through his wife, Sarah, Isaac. And then let's go on from there. So then we talk about Jacob and Esau, while they're in their mother's womb, before they've done anything, God says, Jacob I love. Why? I don't know. Jacob I love. And then he's named Jacob of all things. His name means deceiver. So if you don't think that's going to lead to some bad character, nothing else will. <laughs> right? So here's Jacob, and he goes and he puts on the hairy goat skin on his arms and on the back of his neck, and his father Isaac is like, oh, are you my son Esau? Yes, I am your son Esau. What? And then, so all of a sudden, you know, so he steals his brother's blessing, he steals his brother's birthright and runs off. There is nothing that recommends Jacob at all to God. And then talk about his kids. Holy smokes. All ten of them gang up on their little brother Joseph and say, let's kill him. And then there's only Reuben who says, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's throw him into a cistern and then sell him to Ishmaelite traders. What are you talking about? They sell their brother into slavery? What kind of family dynamics are going on there? I kid you not. Read Genesis. These people are messed up. You, I, I, you read through this and you're like, God, what are you thinking? Reject these people. Do something different. These people are not worthy of your love. But on and on and on, God continues to set his love upon all these messed up people. Moses, and then all the judges in Samson. Don't even get me started about Samson. Talk about a womanizer, right? And then, and then you get David, and we heard all semester about the great character of David, all last semester. So God is doing this work, and he's got all these people of Israel, and he sets his love upon them. And then finally we come to the point where Jesus arrives on the scene. And what does Jesus do? In fact, rather, why is Jesus killed? We know the theological reason, but what's the historical reason for why he was killed? Because he ticked off the Pharisees. The Pharisees, who are lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. The Pharisees who follow Torah. The Pharisees who are the true sons of Israel. The Pharisees who uphold the law and who are recommended before God as his people. But what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't spend time with the Pharisees. Jesus goes and he hangs out with sinners, with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, with poor fishermen. He spends time with the weak and the broken and the sinners. 
And so what we see about Jesus on the cross is not that it was the cross that chose his love, but it was actually the high point of an entire life and an entire history of God showing his love to people. And why? Because. Because. They had nothing to recommend themselves. One verse in Deuteronomy chapter 7. All the people of Israel gathered together before the river Jordan. And they're about to walk into the promised land. And they're asking themselves the question, why? Why us? Why us? Why did you save us out of Egypt? Why did you care for us for 40 years in the deserts? Why did you bring us through the Red Sea? And now why are you taking us into this promised land that is so beautiful and wonderful and you keep us safe from all of our enemies? Why? Why us? Well, Moses says to them, it is not because you are more numerous than any other people's that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you. In other words, you're not more powerful, you're not more wise, there's nothing about you that God loves you and has set, a love, has set his love upon you and chose you. But he loves you and is keeping an oath which he swore to your forefathers. He loves you because he loves you. And he's keeping an oath what he swore to Abram because he decided to do it just because. Right? God is in the business of loving because, of he, because he loves. But I don't know about you, but that just kind of sounds a little unsatisfying at first. Right? You love me because you love me. That's like I love chocolate because I love chocolate. That's not a reason. That's a cop-out. I just love the band Radiohead because I just love the band Radiohead. What? Give me a reason. Give me something. Give me something to go on and show me that you thought about this. But God doesn't do that. I love you because I love you. Let me see if this illustration might help a little. And it's an imperfect illustration. It's a human illustration for something that's so imaginably great in God. And it breaks down if you push it too much, so just take it as it is. But this on the screen is a picture of my wife, Sheila Christine. And that's my son, Sean, when he was newborn. I love my wife. And we've been married for 11 and a half years. And when it came time for our 10th anniversary, I wanted to tell my wife how much I loved her. I wanted to, to express in words why it is that I loved her so much. So I started thinking, do I love her because she's beautiful? Well, yeah, she is beautiful, but she's not always beautiful. <laughs> By the way, I've cleared this illustration with her. <laughs> and there will come a time when we both grow old together and neither of us will be beautiful in a youthful sense. So it's not that. It's not that she's attractive. She's a, a wonderful mother. There are times when she's not all that great of a mom and times when I'm not a great dad. It's, it's not why I love her. 
Well, she really loves like quirky hobbies that I have. Like I'm a Tolkien geek, and she'll go ahead and read Tolkien too. And and I like this really quirky uh, British sci-fi show, and she watches the British sci-fi show with me. And you know, and she she lets me do my hobbies, and and then she actually encourages me to do that even more. And there's all kinds of things that that we do together. We're the best of friends, and oh, I I, I really like that about her. I like that. But if if she were not to do any of those things. I'd still love her. And so I, as I went through again and again different things, I thought, is there anything? Is there any reason why I love her? And I began to get frustrated. And I began to think to myself, well, maybe I don't actually love my wife. <laughs> but then it dawned on me, there is nothing that she has to be. There is nothing that she has to do. There is nothing that she will, will have to be or not be or that she could do or not do in the future that would make me not love her. And I say that now with all the expectation and grace of the Holy Spirit to give me strength. But I love her because I love her. And I think that is as imperfect as it is, is a little bit of, of God's love for us. Right? There, there, there's nothing that God can put his finger on, you know, to say, oh, that's why I love you. Oh, yes, you have wholeheartedly put your trust in me for your grad school decision. Oh, I just, I just love you. I love you about that. Oh my gosh, for the entire month you stayed away from pornography, you've been so pure and clean. Oh, I love you so much. No, God doesn't put his finger on that. What? For the entire week, you've done your devotions to me? Oh my goodness, I just love you so much. Or over spring break, no kidding, you are going on a service learning trip? Oh my gosh, I love you so much more than that group of people who are going to Disney World. <laughs> right? God does not say that to us. Because there's nothing that God can put his finger on about us and why he loves us. He just loves us because he loves us. If anything, God puts his finger on Jesus. And he says, if you want to know, just look at Jesus. Because there, I've proved my love to you beyond a shadow of a doubt. And you should never, ever doubt that I don't love you. Never doubt my love. I love you. Because I love you, and you are mine, and you will always be mine. And pray with me. God, your love is amazing. Sometimes it makes no sense whatsoever. Yet, it causes in our hearts a desire to want to worship you and to praise you, and to bless you. And God, we thank you for the love that is a foundation in our lives, for everything that we do. And we know that in time, because of your love, because of your spirit, we'll begin to see in, in our lives loveliness and those things that are admirable and excellent or praiseworthy, but you don't love us because of any of those things. It's not why you love us. You love us because you love us, and we're so grateful. We just say right now, thank you.
pray that we might worship you and love you in return because of that wondrous grace that you've given us in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. And all of God's people say together, amen. It's tradition at a theater show or a play to bring to a friend or a family member who is in that play flowers. And I'd like to invite you during a time of, of, of singing and hearing some scripture and music to come forward and, and receive a flower, not because of any performance that you have done, but because God wants to say to you, I love you because I love you. And take that flower and you know, stick it in your bag or put it in your car or your mirror at home. Just remember that God loves you because he loves you.